I tell the parents of my students, studying medieval literature shows your kid is wicked smart. Humans value many other qualities in addition to intelligence, but intelligence is both harder to prove and easier to fake than physical strength, health, or attractiveness. So it's very valuable to have a hard to counterfeit way to signal your intelligence to potential employers, partners, friends, collaborators, or mates. This is why I don't think that cultural capital is a particularly good description of what is required by education. Capital is accumulated value that can be used to generate new income without the owners performing any labor. Education in liberal arts does not so much store value that can be used independently of a person, like a machine or a factory, but it instead increases the labor power of the individual student. Mastering a discipline of the liberal arts signals the truth that people who are so educated can be expected to perform valuable work in the future because they have demonstrated that they know how to learn. Studying the liberal arts transforms your brain's work from unskilled to highly skilled labor. Although signaling that you have such skill is valuable, being actually skilled is far more important. All human institutions are flawed, and the academic liberal arts was created and is maintained by humans. But as I have tried to show in this chapter and throughout the book, the benefits of the study of the liberal arts outweigh even the very high costs of the institutions in which they're currently housed. Study of the liberal arts can lead to both material success and societal improvement, and this learning is also a path to personal understanding and fulfillment. Over the past decade, I have recorded 13 audio college courses. These are purchased not primarily by college students, but by people who are outside the university system, usually because they've already completed their formal educations in non-liberal arts disciplines. I've received emails from doctors, lawyers, accountants, military officers, bankers, heavy equipment operators, writers, artists, comedians, diplomats, and teachers, all of whom tell me that they have discovered or rediscovered a love for the liberal arts. They listen to my courses and they study these disciplines, not because they think doing so will produce immediate material rewards, but because their learning brings them joy. In T.H. White's novel, The Once and Future King, Merlin advises a young King Arthur that learning is the cure for sorrow or disappointment. The best thing for being sad is to learn something. That is the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anatomies. You may lie awake at night listening to the disorder of your veins. You may miss your only love. You may see the world around you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor trampled in the sewer of baser minds. There is only one thing for it then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust, and never dream of regretting. Learning is the best thing for you. Look at what a lot of things there are to learn. You can learn astronomy in a lifetime, natural history in three, literature in six, and then after you've exhausted a million lifetimes in biology and medicine and theocriticism and geography and history and economics, why? You can start to make a cartwheel out of appropriate wood or spend 50 years learning to begin to learn to beat your opponent at fencing. And after that, you can start again on mathematics until it is time to plow. The liberal arts contributes to happiness and success by teaching people how to think, providing tools to rule, and thus giving people power to make the world better and the knowledge of how to do so. These disciplines link individuals to a vast continuum of human knowledge, accomplishment, and experience. 
Each person is made more valuable and more human by learning how to think and by being connected to the great tradition, benefiting from the accumulated wisdom and error of the past, struggling with the complex problems of the present, and pushing forward the boundaries of knowledge to create the future. The liberal arts are the study of humanity and its works. There is no subject more fascinating or noble. And that was scholar, author, and professor Michael Drought reading from his new book, How to Learn How to Think, What the Liberal Arts Are Good For Anyway, published by Signum University Press under their Eagle and Dragon imprint. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Georgia and occasional faker of intelligence. And with me today, I have Dr. Michael Drought. Dr. Michael D.C. Drought is Professor and Chair of English and Director of the Center for the Study of Medieval at Wheaton College, Norton, Massachusetts, where he teaches classes in Old and Middle English, Old Norse, Linguistics, Science Fiction, and the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. He has authored and co-authored several books, including ones on Anglo-Saxon, Beowulf, Old English, and the Liberal Arts. He edited J.R.R. Tolkien's Beowulf and the Critics and the J.R.R. Tolkien Encyclopedia and co-edited Transitional States, Cultural Change, Tradition, and Memory in Medieval England. One of the founders of the journal Tolkien Studies, for which he has co-edited 19 volumes, Drought has published over 60 articles and book chapters on topics including Beowulf, Digital Humanities, Old English Psalter Glosses, Tolkien, Math and Science Fiction, The Hellmouth, and the poem Guthlock, and Anglo-Saxon Medical Remedies. He also serves as a consultant for the Lord of the Rings online MMORPG, and Drought has appeared in two History Channel miniseries and recorded 13 audio courses. But today, he's on the Inklings Variety Hour to talk about his book, How to Learn How to Think, What the Liberal Arts Are Good For Anyway, and hopefully we will get into the Beowulf Project as well. Michael, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Do you go by Michael... Mike, Mike, uh, Mike, please. Uh, Mike, yeah. it's so good to have Dr. you on the Drought podcast. Dr. Drought is my father, dude. Yes, yes. I <laughs> I referred to you originally in these notes as Dr. Drought, and then I got to your chapter where you were like, oh, I hate being called Dr. Drought. I was like, oh, shoot, I got to change the notes. So I, I ran back and, and, and did that. But it's it's, so it's mostly because my dad was a, was a medical doctor, and so anytime someone said Dr. Drought in my hearing, they did not mean me. And uh -huh, so, uh -huh. you know... I look for him when some Dr. Drought, what do you like? I don't, I don't, he's, oh, he's not here right now. So that's really the reason for that. Not, not any kind of, you know, inverted snobbery or something that like, like I've heard it. Some institutions, they deliberately don't use doctor or professor mm -hmm. because everyone here is already a doctor or a professor. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not into that either. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast to talk about your books. Should, should I be referring to the Beowulf project as a book? Press. Audio commentary on audio Beowulf. commentary on Beowulf. Okay, yeah. So with me, I also have friend of the show and formidable but very kind Charles Williams scholar Serena Higgins. 
Serena is editor-in-chief, among her many, many other accomplishments, editor-in-chief of Signum University Press, through which Mike is publishing his book. It's great to have you back on, Serena. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Chris. And Mike, thanks for having me on. I love talking about your work. So let's let's talk about since you know since we're talking about both the Beowulf project and and liberal arts how to learn how to think I thought we'd start just by talking about the process of these works and of Signum University Press what what makes Signum University Press different from other presses how is it distinguishing itself It's distinguishing itself by telling Professor Michael D.C. Drought, will you please share with us everything you know about Beowulf, which is probably everything there is to know about (laughs) Beowulf? (laughs) No, but seriously, Mike has been so gracious to jump on board with this wild experiment we're trying of serial release. So I like to say it's Charles Dickens meets the digital age. Some of our works we're releasing in monthly installments so that readers can sign up and receive a chapter or a story or some other chunk of the work on a monthly basis. And in the case of books that are released that way, they're actually works in progress so that readers can even give feedback and watch how the book evolves and then they'll receive a copy of the final book. Now, Mike, yours is a little different because the Beowulf audio commentary is going to stay in audio form. It's not like a precursor to a published work as far as we know (laughs) at this stage, but you're doing this multi-volume long form project in which you go line by line through the poem, and then you're releasing these lectures and discussions on a monthly basis. So I'm just so grateful that you've been willing to jump in in the early years of the press and try this experiment with us. I think you should tell just how early I was in the, the, evolution of the press because i believe if i'm not mistaken you guys announced the press around 10 p.m on like say a friday and i had my prospectus into you by 9 a.m the next morning for the liberal arts book so you had the full manuscript in okay well yes by the next morning <laughs> so you were the first submitter by far it was awesome and so here i am we're at a conference and Corey olson the tolkien professor announces the press and you're like I have something for that. And so here I have a full book manuscript in my hands before 24 hours have passed. So yeah, congratulations. I know, obviously I know Serena, I know Corey. I know that pretty much everything that they have touched in the past you know, X number of years has turned to gold. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that it's going to work out. Oh, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. And I, I couldn't be more grateful for you trusting us with your manuscript and with the Beowulf project. It's... One of, one of the liveliest defenses of the liberal arts that I've read. So much fun. And I uh, love that at the end of each chapter, you have a real life story yes. of one of your students and something that came out of their studies of liberal arts. And these stories are so varied. And oh, just I mm-hmm. love these stories. I have I have great students and those stories are all true. What, what I think, so Serena, you should take credit for, that was your idea. And though you've heard all those stories before <laughs> verbally. And and the other piece of it, I one of the times it got rejected the person rejecting it said this really sounds more like a really experienced teacher who loves the liberal arts teaching all his good tricks and interesting stuff and i'm like (laughs) why is that a criticism (laughs) that's a blurb that's a blurb (laughs) that's great take the rejection letter oh yeah yes do that
Arts. So what are the liberal arts anyway? So the the liberal arts, the the name comes from the going back to the classical period, the seven liberal arts, which were the the trivium which is three, and the quadrivium, which is four. <laughs> Not really anything fancy there, except that we do get the word trivial from the trivium, and that means that it was considered more basic. So the trivium is grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the quadrivium are more mathematically focused. So arithmetic, geometry, and then this surprises a lot of people, but music and astronomy. But so it's sort of the trivium is words and the quadrivium is numbers. You can think of it as, you know, arithmetic and then geometry is numbers applied to space. Astronomy is, you know, numbers applied to motion really for a lot of what was, you know, being done then. And then in music, it's it's numbers in time because it's harmony, essentially. And and in any event, these there, there had been the nine major disciplines and then they, they were boiled down to seven and they sort of were the curriculum for educated people from the the Roman Empire up well continuing still at some places in, into the you know into the 21st century they've obviously evolved in time the sciences that leave astronomy and and mathematics and things seem to have broken you know off and so what you get is more of a sense of the liberal arts as being the the, the elements of the trivium, but developed and elaborated and, and expanded. But that's, it, it's been the way, and this is, I think, the key point. It's been the way that the elites and the powerful of the world have continued to educate their own children, regardless of what they say is best for everyone else's children. And I think that that's a big like signpost, my 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 daughter was a scholarship student at Noble and Greeno. It's a very very old school that that is here in our town of Dedham, and it was amazing. Where in the public schools and in other you know private schools, some of the Catholic schools around, every educational fad that comes down the pipeline, it was it was at that time Bill Gates's Common Core thing, right? Oh, we got to do that. That's the way to educate. Whereas the school full of rich kids. They're still doing Latin. I mean, they're 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 sixth and or seventh and eighth grade is called English via Latin, and it's hmm. a like a two period thing where you do Latin and English in the same from the same teachers. So that and then I started looking into you know what what does Harvard teach in their core curriculum and what's at Princeton and 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 Oxford and Cambridge and and other you know elite places and it became clear to me that. This was, you know, the the core disciplines of leadership, and 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 that was what these these children were being taught to be was to be future leaders. And I kind of, I am I'm from a middle class background, and I didn't see why me and my kids shouldn't be leaders also. And so that that's sort of where some of the impetus of talking about this came from. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, so you're t you're talking about the fact that there's there's been really a continuity since, you know, ancient Athens, at least ancient Rome, right? And in, in in the way people in the West have been educated, why then do we need a defense of the liberal arts? Why why do they need to be defended if they're not in danger, especially at kind of the you know commanding heights of culture or whatever else? Because they're in danger everywhere else. Okay. And 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 I think that's bad for two reasons. I mean, the first is that I think that they are the most effective way 
to to learn. To, they teach you you learn how to learn and you learn how to be able to orient yourself, you know, to understand a new subject when you get into it so that you can learn because that's really what we're we're all doing and having to do now in our in our lives, you know, the world changes out from under you and you have to know how to to learn and and it's we are not no you know not in a static culture i mean i think if you were in ancient egypt you could go 3000 years and you didn't have to learn a lot of you know changes coming coming around but we don't you know despite people's maybe desire for it we don't have that anymore and so you need to learn how to learn and the the other side of it is i think that that there's a lot of and this is probably somewhere where Serena and I actually agree on on something that there's a lot of currents in our in our culture right now that are are working to to push apart the experiences of the the very very elite you know the billionaire kids and the people connected at high levels in government agencies and corporations and so forth and everybody else and I think that's bad and I think it's particularly bad when it when it goes to something like lifelong learning, like I don't want it to be that that middle class and working class kids are sort of permanently excluded from the ability to gain new knowledge in the most effective, effective way. Mm. So that that's one one part of it. And I think the other part is just that science, especially since 1945, has become so amazingly successful though it's been falling off lately you know that that it was like okay you know we, we should educate everyone to be an engineer we should ever educate everyone to be a scientist you know everyone needs to do stem and and my take on that is my wife is is an engineer with a with a doctorate in engineering i mean she she went to mit when she was 16 years old she's done nothing but engineering and she would say that too many people are being pushed through the engineering and science thing when it's not what they really want to do. In other words, they're doing, they're majoring in science or they're they're you know taking a ton of of science classes, but they really want to be political leaders or managers or other things, and so they're they're miserable, and it pulls it, it messes up the science education for the the people who really don't want to do anything except you know work on a bench top or or engineer things and 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 they're you know it, it we've we've it's like the the sputnik thing where we suddenly rush and everyone needs to do science no everyone doesn't need to do science people the only people who need to do science and there's hopefully a lot of them are people who love doing science but doing science because you should is a terrible idea it just ruins it for everyone and so and, and but the liberal arts for it, it's it's so wide if you want to be you know i can connect with students who want to work in the video game industry and feel like they need to learn a lot of history and literature and ideas about fantasy and i can connect with people who want to be lawyers or want to go to the business school in fact my my current one of my current honors thesis students um, wrote a just great honors thesis on Beowulf and the Dust Veil of 536. Hmm. He's going to business school next year, but his plan is to go to law school. And, you know, that that's what the, the liberal arts enables. 
I think, is that flexibility yeah. and deep learning. And also that you can usually find something within it that a student can find love for, yeah. which is not, and again, I am a very pro-science person, both from like family reasons and my own research does a lot of interdisciplinary work. And I hang out with mathematicians and sciences scientists at, at my, my college. And it's 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 not it's not for everybody and it and it shouldn't be people should have the flex flexibility and freedom to study what they that what they care about because they'll do better in that than they will you know i mean and you know and there's 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 of course there's of course limits like you don't want doctors who don't understand how organic chemistry works even though they right. will never use organic chemistry in in medicine but you know, there's, there's some reasonable accommodations that can be made there. Yeah. 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 That's great. So what I'm often seeing in my little corner of liberal arts college world is not so much students being pushed into science by their parents as students being pushed into a major that their parents believe will get them a job. And so you've had this implosion of the major that my own discipline is concerned with, right? English and explosion of students taking business, for example, because they think, oh, business, that equals job. Is is the, do you see a kind of shift where it's not, it's not as much, I mean, it's still, it's still a kind of pragmatic mindset, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's interfering with, with, with students studying the liberal arts, but more to do with, okay, I'll, as soon as I get out of here, I want to go into business. I want to make money is, yeah. Is, is, is that sort of the new rival to. It, it is at my school also. Okay. The way I, I, I found a workaround. I've been to, I've stuck being department chair for the past three years, but we went from having 14 majors to 53 right nice. now. And the way I did that was recruit double majors like crazy. Go major in business because that's what your parents want to, and then come major in English because that's what you love doing. And in fact, the parents then are very supportive because they think of English as, well, you can write and you can read mm -hmm. and you can do complex arguments. And you also have this business thing. I, I have to say that, you know, all the liberal arts colleges jumping on the business bandwagon and about to jump on the nursing bandwagon means it isn't going to work because there's not an arbitrage opportunity there if everybody's doing the same thing. Yep. So it might have been the case that, you know, even say 10 years ago, you got a business degree, but from a liberal arts college and like, oh, that makes you stand out. It doesn't make you stand out anymore. Because that's what that's what the vast majority of students are are doing. So, and and also, I think that you know the the latest thing, and I don't I hate being trendy, but if you don't want to be replaced by a, a a chat bot, you need something. You need to be better than the chat bot, and chat bots are better than people at producing BS. And if your job is writing BS. And your job is writing stuff that sounds like everybody else's stuff that everybody's writing, which, by the way, is pretty much what your low-level marketing and business communication is all about, right? It's teaching students to write so that they sound like every other student that's writing their you know, professional mm -hmm. or, or whatever. 
you're you you don't have a job in the long run then because yeah. it's it's good enough now to to like they can you know i know someone doing this who you know has uses chat gpt to generate all the stuff and then gives it to one person to smooth proofread clean up take out errors whatever when they used to have seven people involved in those in those areas mm -hmm. right and i mean i was horrified but he's like do you know how much money that saved me yeah and, and so that's i mean i i have this piece that that maybe Serena's going to want me to do from Signum, but I was thinking of it as like a, you know, as a traveling lecture was entitled, don't be chat GPT, yeah. how to keep a robot from stealing your job. <laughs> and, the, and the answer is exactly what we offer in English and in the liberal arts in general, right? The single best way to write in a way that chat GPT doesn't imitate is to learn a foreign language. Because mm -hmm. it does just enough to give you alternative syntactic constructions. You know, you're even if you're, you're not thinking in French, but you know that the adjective before the the noun thing just scrambles your thinking enough to keep it from going down the really familiar grooves of of yeah. really good. you know what of the BS that everybody else is is creating. So studying, reading a lot of very different literature, and more most importantly, stylistically different mm -hmm. literature is you know you you essentially we've now got to think that we're in we're in a mental competition with our own creations and so we need to i i was used to say that i don't want to have a computer do poorly what a person can do well but the right. problem is now is that the computers are catching up yeah in, in some of the things and 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 that's i think that's bad for 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 everyone I yeah. don't, you know, I, I, but I think that there's, there, we're not going to be, you know, unless we're going to have a Frank Herbert style Butlerian jihad, which by the way, if so, then <laughs> moi dib, moi dib, but we're, we're, <laughs> we're not, we're not there yet. Well, um, and you alluded to this too, but there's also, as of right now, the chat GPT, the content is just nonsense mm -hmm. and it, it, it makes stuff up and it mixes real sources and fake sources. Mm -hmm. So another of the huge strengths of liberal arts is not only teaching the content itself, right? These great ideas that have been passed on the literature, the history and psychology and so forth, but also those higher level skills of assessing between being able to recognize what is a fake source and what is a real source and being able to mm -hmm. know how to look these things up and evaluate them. And when you were talking, Mike, about the, the great divide between the elites and everybody else, I was also thinking about the other great divides that American culture is clamoring about right now, you know, like partisan divides and so forth. And there's a phrase I found really helpful, which is you see people living in alternative epistemological ecosystems from one another. And hopefully studying the liberal arts and studying syllogistic logic and studying research methods and so forth can help us to have those conversations in which we examine each other's epistemological foundations and come to a more nuanced understanding that we're not reducing each other to sound bites and just writing each other off as fake news, but that we can do the deep work of evaluating each other's alternate claims and having those discussions. I mean, that would that would certainly be the hope. And it's the thing that gives us the best the best chance of doing it. You know, I, I talked about this in the book that, you know, there's a chapter in there, can the liberal arts make you a better person? In which I reluctantly conclude 
No, <laughs> or or they don't put it this way. They don't force you to become a better person. They can make you become a much better person. And I, I rely on Iris Murdoch, the philosopher, said that the purpose of literature is to prove that other people really exist. And on first glance, that sounds like a ridiculous statement. But the more you push on it, the more you realize that that everyone, everyone does this, discounts the humanity of people who are different from us in one way or another, right? Now, you know, you can do those, there's those interesting heat maps that say that like people on the left of the political spectrum, like they they care more, like the heat map gets denser and darker in caring, like when you get a little bit further away. In other words, like kind of like disliking your neighbors, but loving humanity in general. And on the other side, it's the more traditional view that the further you get away, the more that people are disliked. You know, if they're living, if they're on the other side of the country, then they must be weird. Or, you know, if, if they're on the other side of the world, forget it. And and so this is like my point is here that that no political philosophy solves that. Right. It's it's a it's a function of our primate brains, how we how we you know handle those things. But what Murdoch is pointing out is that when we read literature, that gets through those defenses. And no matter how much we don't want to acknowledge the humanity of someone else, we end up doing it because of the the power of of literature. So, you know, students now you, you have them read Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it's I, I love this contemporary. My I don't like a lot of contemporary slang, but one thing is just flawless is cringe. And I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin is cringe. It is cringe all the way through. It's embarrassing, right? Like, you know, it's embarrassing in how perfect every one of the slaves is and how purely evil every one of the owners is and, and all that. And it's also cringe that it's it's condescending and obnoxious. But it got a critical mass of people in the 1850s and 60s in America to realize that the, the point that is not anymore like surprising for most people that like, oh, they're they're humans. They're they're like us. They like care when when someone they love dies and and they don't want to be separated from their families. And and like, you know, again, you're like, duh, but it needed to be done. And and it was, and you know, I mean, and the power of literature is so great that like you can do that with rabbits. I mean, you read Watership right. Down, and you start like crying when a rabbit dies, right? And and so that that's that's enormously powerful, and it and it's and I love it, you know, because it's so corrosive that that you that you try to prevent it from happening. Um, one of the things I mentioned in the book is Dom DeLillo's novel running dog the novel that nobody ever likes or talks about where the gimmick is it's the most pornographic film in the history of the world and it was found it was filmed in hitler's bunker when the russians are you know marching through through berlin and then when they finally see it there's no sex it's hitler pretending to be charlie chaplin pretending to be hitler cheering up Goebbels' kids when they're scared by the bombardment. And hmm. what's horrifying that everybody immediately recognizes this is like, it humanizes him. No, we don't want that. And and the, the point being, right, like the power of literature, it humanized. I mean, Milton did it with 
Satan. You know, like you, the, the power of of this of this material to to bridge divides that maybe that we don't want bridged for various for various reasons. But I think in overall that the corrosiveness of literature to established you know orthodoxies and and hierarchies is is so is so important and that is like you know that's what what you and i teach all the time all three of us teach all you know i mean you might not be teaching right this minute serena except you are in all in every online thing so, you know that's that's why i'm i'm very passionate and and i do think that like what we what we do you know has a societal value beyond just preparing you to be you know to, to be a, an effective member of a of a you know human organization which is sort of what we'd use college for yeah that's 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 well said and I loved that argument from empathy and in, in in your book and I love also that you you know for each of the arguments you say okay this has this has shortcomings right ultimately it doesn't it doesn't go as far as I would like it to go right but together they kind of you know combine in some Voltron like way right and, and <laughs> I um, hope <laughs> yeah and and I think I think it's 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 just it's very well said very clearly said I think you know being a medievalist as well, I certainly jive with the, you know, being able to understand the past on its own terms. That's like my whole thing that I'm interested in, right? I do have, you know, some would say, isn't that a step backward, right? Weren't weren't people in the past just bigoted in in this way or that way that we now realize is really important? And shouldn't we hesitate to understand their worldview if we've progressed past that point, right? And if if we if we now no longer are in as much danger of dehumanizing, say, slaves, right, or 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 whatever else, right? Why read Uncle Tom's Cabin that takes us back into that mindset of where where people? I, I mean, it it humanizes. I mean, you could read Beloved slaves. and have right. them, you know, slaves humanized in a in a way that's more acceptable to right, you know, contemporary prejudices and tastes. But I would just point out that like, so I totally reject the idea as, as, un, as not only unproven as lacking evidence that we are in any way better human beings than our, our predecessors. And we're definitely not smarter than most of them, except when we stand on their, on their shoulders. But in yeah. terms of actual like education and intelligence, no. And I will just point out that we are not even, what, two years away, not even maybe a year and a half away, when large segments of our society were talking about taking people's children away from them and locking them in camps for not taking an experimental vaccine that turned out not to prevent people from spreading the disease. And I don't think that we have any leg to stand on feeling morally superior. We're just in, we just care about different things. You know, I mean, you're a medievalist, so you know, like, they would be horrified by the way that our societies don't seem to care about people's souls very much. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and if you then say that and people look at you funny and then you talk to them privately, like, do you believe you have a soul? Like, of course I do. 
You know, <laughs> of course I have a soul. <laughs> okay, then don't you think you should take good care of it and try to improve it? Setting aside the afterlife arguments, just like trying to have a better soul in the world. Like the, the Victorians would be horrified that we don't think about that. And the medievals would be, would be also. And then, I mean, you do it, probably do it too. When you teach things like the humoral theory or the, the Christian variants of that, like that Chaucer's, the, the, the Parsons tale, damn, it's actually really great practical psychology, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you were a therapist and someone walked in and said, the problem is I am hideously envious of everybody, you know, around me and I can't get past it. And it, 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 it grates on me and it drives me crazy that people have things that I don't have. Would a contemporary therapist know to do what Chaucer said was, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go give some stuff to charity. Hmm. Take some of your money right now. We're going to walk down and we're going to give it to charities. And people are like, what? How could that possibly work? And I can actually tell you from experience, it does work. Hmm. Like you can cure envy with charity. Hmm. Which is which is shocking to me. Yeah. Like in a, in a you know a mo no one in nothing in modern psychology told me that would work, yeah. right? But yeah. but it, it actually dealing with with one of my one of my kids one time who had an envy problem, and I I said this is what, you know I just popped into my head from Chaucer like this is what we're going to do. You're we're going to go give some of our money, you know, and do it personally. We're going to go down to the food pantry and we're going to do this personally. And, and I mean, I don't think you ever fully solve envy, you know, because that's part of being the seven deadly sins are, are for a reason. Right. But I, I think it puts that it into a new perspective, mm -hmm. it both personalizes it and shows it in this larger cultural context. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, and, and it also, I think then can give you a sense of respect for like other cultures. So when I teach the humoral theory of, of medicine and yes, in terms of actual blood, it's wrong. In terms of, you know, trying to think things through of personality types and, and so forth. But when I have taught that, sometimes my students from China, their eyes have lit up and they suddenly like they jump in, they're like, this matches, you know, and the the chi the and the this huh. goes here and there. And like a student who hadn't really talked in class much is like, you know, can can I come up to the blackboard? And is explaining. Because again, even if it doesn't work in terms of biology, it works in terms of psychology, right? And those those connections. But but you have to you have to be deep in the material to get the connection. Because if you're just at kind of a shallow thing, like yeah, I know they believe something about humors, right? You can't get there. What you're yeah. talking about reminds me powerfully of C.S. Lewis reviving the discarded image. And I know Chris, your listeners are really passionate about the Inklings and their work. So this is a connection here. I was just writing a course actually for the teaching company last week on C.S. Lewis. And so I, I dove back into the discarded image and it's the same thing. Lewis is mm. like, yeah, okay. You know, maybe the, you know, the pre-Copernican model of the universe isn't actually technically scientifically correct, but look at how it works as a model of the soul, the spirit, the spiritual, the psychological, of the ways that humans interact with each other. Look at how it's orderly and beautiful and how it suggests that we're not in just a random nihilistic universe, but that we make sense out of our lives with narratives and we can make sense out of the natural world with these orderly 
structures and these orderly systems. So I think that's another analogy of taking this old idea that maybe isn't technically correct from a material point of view, but has these deeper truths in it that are worth reviving and worth studying. The reason I love Lewis and Tolkien, or at least a big part of the reason, is is that that was so much part of their project, right? To to not only in terms of exposing us to the ideas of the past, but also the what they what they imagined to be anyway the the emotional sympathies, right? Of 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 medievals and and cultures even further back, right back to Atlantis, I guess. But I think, yeah, one I, I've. So many, so many things I'd like to ask based based on that. But one of one of the things is that generally, do you find that liberal arts, as they are taught currently throughout the U.S., are likely to inculcate in new students a received wisdom from the past and and, a, and an attitude of receptivity? Or are they more likely to inculcate a sort of self-congratulatory, thank goodness we're not like them uh, kind of attitude? And if so, like, are, are they still doing good? I don't think it's the, I, I think that it would be neither in that, I don't think the self-congratulatory, I think the self-congratulatory attitude is entirely held in the professorate and not among the students right now right our students have been beaten down by such repeated you know criticisms that that in in my view don't apply to them as 18 to 22 year olds who have not exactly made the world that they're that they're living in and they have been having you know that's all they've looked at like and I mean, I, I don't. I'm not really exaggerating that that because that kind of that critique, right, is so easy to do in the current system. You will never go wrong. Like you, you will. You, you know, one of my students said. You, you said the other day. <laughs> she goes, "It's amazing how misogynistic you're allowed to be if you just put the word white first. And she's right. She's right. Like you can you can say the most misogynistic stuff if you say it's about Karens or or white women or something like that that you that you couldn't get away with before. And so th I think that what what students come in with is they they have a sense that like one they they have no they have no map anymore. Mostly because we've we've for good reasons we started to really question the the Norton anthology model of literature, right? Like that, you know, read everything in order from this little snippets of it. But but now like I, I we have to I, I do this in like seminars and things where they're supposed to be advanced. We just like start what happens by century, like timelines and having a general impression of what, you know, what is this, what is the 17th century about, you know, in, in English literature or something. So I, I don't think it's the the self congratulatory. I think it's it's a self loathing that if we're lucky, we pull them out of some of that. We we get them to see that that you know the that the achievements of the past absolutely have blood stains on them and have the bones of you know of people under them but also that they are achievements and that they 
they are are worth preserving and and studying. I taught a course this year for the first time purely on Vikings and Old Norse. And mm. it was it was one of the best experiences I've 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 had teaching. We read I, I took a gamble and I said, we're gonna read all of Njal Saga. I don't care mm. if it has 175 characters who have speaking parts. And we're, we spent <laughs> half the semester on Njal Saga. And and they just got it. Like they mm. they got that because you know, and part of it was that they could see the way that Njal Saga would pick up themes from Old Norse religion or legend, right? So this guy is like Odin, even though they're not saying he's actually Odin, you know, coming up there. And this is like, oh, Berg Thora does the Brunhild thing and stays on her husband's funeral pyre and so forth. And then some things started to click with other texts that they that they had read that like, oh, oh, this is this is what's going on now with with you know something from Shakespeare or something you know or the, the one of them brought up that that they had read Grapes of Wrath. They'd been told that Jim Cody is a Christ figure, pointed out his initials, JC, the whole deal there. But they didn't understand what a Christ figure meant, except that it was kind of like a like an Easter egg for Christians hmm. to find. In other words, like, oh, cool, he's Jesus. I get it. Instead of like what the the idea of those echoes of, you know, yeah. repeated, repeated history, repeated morality would be. And then why Steinbeck was doing that, right? Because they'd been just taught Steinbeck the the quasi-Marxist critique, but not Steinbeck the quasi-Marxist critique comes from being loving Christian who thinks that these you know, that the poor should not be treated this way because they are, you know, they are in the image of God themselves. And that's who Jesus was redeeming. And, you know, so our students, like they, they, they're, they're so bright and they're so hungry for material, but like the world is a kaleidoscope to, to them, yeah. I think yeah. right now. Well, in your seventh chapter of your book, you provide Beowulf as a, as a kind of case study on on how the liberal arts can enrich our lives. I, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more, not just about how Beowulf, who, you know, at first we wouldn't think, we don't really associate him with Greco-Latin learning, right? Not readily anyway, but how Beowulf connects to the idea of the liberal arts and then and then a, a bit more about your Beowulf project and audio commentary. So I think that the the motivation for for putting I just I mean first of all, I I have loved Beowulf since the first time I read it. I have wanted to, you know, be a scholar of Beowulf. I had the incredible good luck to be taught old english by john john miles foley at the university of missouri columbia who was the, the leading scholar of oral tradition so we read a lot of beowulf out loud and talked about how it you know listened to the way it sounded in old english and i just absolutely fell in love with the poem and one of my experiences with it was that he had a collaborative reading of Beowulf for all the grad, he invited all the grad students over to his house at the end of the semester. And we read the poem straight, well, actually not straight through, we took a break for dinner, but three hours and 17 minutes of, of reading Beowulf. Now that also happened to be the night, like right before I went to that gathering, I had gotten a message on my answering machine. That's the how where we were. That said that that my my uncle 
who had been in hospice was, you know, you're going to have to come home for, you know, in the next, you know, couple days. And so I was feeling that. And as we're reading Beowulf, what I what I got out of that poem was it gives a shape to grief and loss. And one of the reasons grief and loss are so overwhelming is they're they're a they're a cloud or a fog or a tidal wave. They're not, you know, you're in the midst of it and you can't even see what the shape of it might be. And that Beowulf and lots of I've, lots of works of literature do that, but for me, Beowulf did that. So that was one part. And then the other part was that I was out at the Santa Fe Institute I, giving a talk about memes. And I was talking to a David Krakauer, who's one of like the humanities kind of person who does a lot of their organizing and so forth, or he's complexity studies, but he's as close to humanities as you get at Santa Fe. And and I was saying how much I love the the edifice of knowledge built up around Beowulf. Like when this poem is rediscovered in 1815, no, people can barely read it. You know, they don't know what the words mean. They they can't, they, none of it makes sense. And over 200 and something years, we've painstakingly learned stuff about it. And there's been a ton of dead ends and crazy, you know, red herrings and stuff. And he was saying, oh, I just can't stand that. Like, you know, uh, that all that, that mess and that wasted time. And I'm like the opposite. I'm like, oh, it's so glorious because you, you can figure out why so-and-so thought what he thought, even if it was wrong in, and a lot of it turns out not to be wrong, right? It's just like that you, we've misinterpreted the scholarship in some ways. And so I, I wanted to sort of celebrate the whole enterprise of, of Beowulf, the, you know, everything from the, we have a manuscript that caught on fire in 1731 and was damaged but we have some transcripts of it that have some of the letters that were damaged in the fire. And yet the transcripts don't agree with each other and sometimes not with the manuscript themselves. And there's there's like so many layers of, of this like sort of detective work. And, and it's a mixture of really precise, you know, technical philological arguments about what sound in proto West Saxon would have been represented by this letter and which scribe might miscopy that letter and really big holistic stuff, which is what Tolkien was. So, you know, what's funny is Tolkien was great at both, but what he's famous for is the big sweeping holistic thing. Mm -hmm. What he spent 90% of his career doing was the, you know, the other, yeah. the, the incredibly detailed stuff. And so, I wanted to show that like this is how we make knowledge and that I think that's the key phrase in the, in that in that chapter right like you you are making knowledge the knowledge isn't out there you know I I love that the latin word for invention is to find something but even even then it's not just like you know it's it's not just like a seashell on the beach like you you have to you have to make it into something if we want maybe the metaphor would be it looks just like a rock until somebody thinks to melt it down and hammer it and make it into something and decorate it with stuff. And then you like, wow, this Sutton who treasure, like, look at that thing. And I, I feel like the same way that, you know, there's, there's knowledge and it looks like a rock and, and then, you know, over through the patient work of 200 years and thousands of scholars in multiple languages, all, Know, trying their best to figure out we somehow in a really inefficient and stupid way 
find our way to a better understanding of of the of the text and then there's the, of course so then it's, and the key key thing is and then it's a piece of literature that is emotionally moving and 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 stimulatory and inspiring and applicable in completely different ways mm. to the three of us and to you know every other person reading it and so like like the work is never done and yeah. and it's it's fun fun work so that's what i wanted to do there yeah and then, How, go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. And that's what we wanted to tap into. That's what we wanted to capture and record and make available for people is because you have this lifetime of learning and passion for this text. And you're you're both a scholar and a teacher. And not very many people are as, as good at both, right? Like a lot of scholars are not that great at communicating it to those who aren't experts. And then sometimes teachers don't have time to do the deep research, but you're able to bring both of those to this text. Oh. So we wanted to give you a chance to just go line by line through the poem so you're you're generally putting out five lectures a month and four mm. of them are these line by line commentaries and then a topical one uh, right that's oh, about the structure on. so you read the line in old english and then you translate it and then you spend the lecture discussing why you've translated it that way and all the textual cruxes and the scholarly discussions on it. i mean you spend what 28 minutes or something on the first word of the poem. And I absolutely adore that. I just think that's glorious. Uh, you go over been an hour choice. long lecture on the first 11 lines right? and I did the math and I'm like, I will never be finished with this project. Yeah. So I was going to ask, I mean, is this comparable in terms of entishness to Professor Olson's um, Exploring Lord of the Rings? Yeah, that was the model. And Corey is sort of going the opposite way because Corey's been doing this long form podcast exploring the Lord of the Rings for a long time and people keep doing the math and figuring out what year he'll be done and it keeps going further and further out. But in his case, he's now writing the book exploring Lord of the Rings. So he's been doing the podcast for all these years in the audio form and now he's getting it into a written form and people can also subscribe to that. But then Mike, you've been teaching and writing on Beowulf for years and now we're getting into this codified. Audio yeah, but so you do the line by line commentaries, and then you also do these topical lectures about once a month on issues like the manuscript and Beowulf and Christianity, or Beowulf and Norse mythology, or cultural things, or oral tradition, and so forth. So it's just an absolute wealth of knowledge. And when it's when it's done, <laughs> it will just be probably the most comprehensive sort of Beowulf course commentary that's out there. thank you i hope it i hope it is the it, the idea came to me that i was going to do like just a podcast like this you know of i had i'd been interviewed on a bunch you know i, I knew about Corey's. there's a story there about, about Corey's podcast and tolkien professor <laughs> yeah yeah that well i i mean i deserve what i get on that one because but but anyway i you know, I've been thinking about it and I had even bought like the equipment. I have a like, you know, a mixing board and a good microphone and, and all that stuff. And I had just thought of this idea of, you know, doing this long form podcast that I didn't even care if anybody, you know, listened to it or subscribed it. But I, I couldn't figure out how to work all the details. And and so I just had it as a vague idea. And then I ended up talking with with. Corey and Serena and and to my surprise they're like oh we want you to do this and 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 we'll help with all the stuff that I'm not good at right like mm -hmm. I have an amazing 
unbelievable sound editor that that you know makes me sound so much better than I actually sound. And I I've you know they Signum has handled all the the archiving and distribution and and so all I have to do is talk about something I want to talk about anyway. And it's been it's also been a great discipline for me because I you know I have to prep because I'm not going to read. So I have to prep the section I'm I'm translating aloud well enough that I know every you know every word and and all the background problems associated with it and the manuscript problems and and so forth and then I have to and then I improvise around it because otherwise it would be unbelievably boring sounding. Wasn't it a little weird at first not to have a classroom full of students because usually you have the very... translation and then you discuss what you liked in theirs and what you might suggest changing or you compare theirs. But here it's just you. It's a one directional. I, I learned how to handle that through the, the 13 recorded books classes where you now there, I at least usually had a sound engineer as audience and sometimes and often a producer, but they were often doing other things too. You know, I could see through the glass that, Oh, he's checking his email and he's doing this. I'm like, I'm going to get his attention back somehow. <laughs> but so it is weird to sit like in this room and just talk Beowulf through, but it it it's I think I've I've gotten kind of a, a flow to it. And the the idea is I think audio is the only way that you can do this. Like you can take I don't have it in this room right now, but I cleaned up all my I cleaned up all my books because my wife was tired of how many books were all over the house. They'll all come back here in the next three days. But, but you know, you can take Kleber's giant introduction, you know, edition of Beowulf. And there's tons, I mean, there's there's an immense amount of information there. But it's look to the footnote, look to the back of the book, look over here, mm -hmm. look there, look there, look there. I mean, it's very hard for even the most dedicated person to go through that systematically. And there's limits. Like, one of the things that drives me absolutely bonkers crazy is when someone says something like, well, obviously that's wrong. Right. I mean, and the Germans are the worst about that. They're like, basically, <laughs> like, if you have to ask why it's wrong, then you're wrong too. And like, that is not the point of educating people. So, you know, I have, I have actually, it's been really helpful because I've had to do these, what my students call deep dives mm. into like, why, why does someone think that's wrong? And I've gotten like, two articles out of out of that already one on the line 6a of the poem that nelson goring and i wrote and another one that i wrote with a with another signum student he was a signum student before he was my student at wheaton Caden kumar who happened to spot that the manuscript at one point says alda the ruler of elves and hmm. every editor from the very beginning has made it alwalda the ruler of all and yet that's a completely unmotivated error. Like I can see leaving the F off. I can't see sticking it in there for no good reason at all. And yeah. so I have a paper coming out in studies in philology that ar argues that that's the correct reading and that there's an earlier version of Beowulf that's behind the Beowulf we have right now where the King, King Hrothgar asks Freyr, Ingve mm. Freyr, the mm. ruler of elves, yeah, for help against Grendel and the guy who oh, shows up. Interesting. The guy who shows up, his name Beowulf is always. Everyone wants Beowulf to mean bear. Everybody, including uh -huh. the poet, right? But it doesn't mean bear. It means servant of barley, 
which is a, a hypochorism for servant of Frere. Mm. Right? Mm. So when a guy named servant of Frere shows up and yeah. says, I'm here to fight your monster, Hrothgar thinks, I think maybe Frere sent this guy to fight the monster. Now, I think the actual poet of Beowulf, the person we think of as the Beowulf poet, got the name wrong. I think he did interpret it as Wolf of the Bees, and therefore he makes Beowulf have this bear-like backstory there because it's 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 there i mean he you know he hugs someone to death and and he's really big and strong and he and he had a slack youth which makes no sense right in the historical side of the things but makes sense if he's a bear and and he's you know and also we know that there was a bear story associated with herod because it's buffar bjarki who's like you know mother's name is female bear I mean, they're not even hiding anything there with with Buffar, you know, and, and his bear characteristics. So, so anyway, I think that like you know, editors do like the great editors of the poem do go through and they look at every word and they look at every line, but they don't have the ability to communicate about that. That that this that the development of audio podcasts, whatever you want to call them, streams, you know, projects does. And so that I think is is really valuable. And what I'm hoping for when we finish it in two years or whatever that is, that we find some way, one, I'll have to write it up in like a, some kind of stuff in a written form, but also not paying a student to transcribe it. I know better now, but, but like have it indexed in some way too, yeah. so that people can search it so that people can say like, I want to know what's been said about line, you know, line, yeah. 227. And, and I've tried in doing this project to not make it all be like, I mean, I'll tell, I, I don't think there's any point in hiding what my opinions are. Like, I, I don't think it's, it's useful when a professor is like that. Guess what I'm thinking? Like, no, but I've tried to say like, this is what the mainstream opinion is on this piece. That, that by the way, is what bothered, like what made Tolkien so gun shy. I don't know why he was, he's the flipping Bosworth Rawlinson professor of Anglo-Saxon. He's the most prestigious philologist in the world. And yet you can tell from his letters and from some of Christopher's letters too, that they are really nervous about when they put something out there that it's going to get attacked by the, by the philologists and stuff. And so I think that's one of the reasons so much of it wasn't ever published until after he was dead. But he was, I, I mean, I find myself, agreeing more often than than not with his detailed you know his detailed readings so you've been mentioning like when you finish this project but i just want to make sure that chris that your listeners know they don't have to wait until the project is done there's tons of ways that people can get involved right now so you're putting this out in monthly installments and people can subscribe right now and they'll receive each of those installments as it drops at the end of each month. And so if any listeners right now want to jump on, they can also go and purchase the back installments that they've missed. And then when you get to, I think, a line thousand, we agreed, we're going to sort of stop, take a breather. 1,070. 1,070. <laughs> we're going to stop and take a breather. And then we're going to package that up. And this the press will do this part. And we'll, we'll have it as a book on Audible. And it'll be volume one. It'll be Exploring Beowulf volume one. So then that will be available... So somebody who maybe just heard about it right then, instead of going and purchasing each of the back installments, they can buy volume one on Audible or from our own. We have our own um, sales platform at Signal University that they can use. 
and then you'll do it again. <laughs> and so we'll see, you know, is it going to take you three volumes, four volumes to get through this? But yeah, in any case, supposed... it'll be this glorious collection by the time it's done. And I'm supposed to be finishing my Tolkien book at this same time right. <laughs> that I actually signed a contract for this time. So I can't just like let it go. But uh, no, I think it's, it's, they're, they're obviously synergistic. Yes. Also. And then you the know, other I mean... thing though, th and this circles back around to where we started, Christopher, you asked what's unique about the Signum University Press. We also have a patronage model that people can support our authors and our scholars and our creative people. So we call it the author's circle and people can pay a monthly fee, which goes half to the author directly and half to the press for supporting their work. And then Mike, you've been meeting monthly with these people and I have an author's circle as well. And I think it is unspeakably valuable to me. It is priceless. I mean, Chris, you were there last month and you all helped me figure out this incredibly difficult technical problem in the story that I was rewriting. And Mike, your author's circle, I mean, it's just this avid group. They're mostly Anglo-Saxonists. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was great. The and then someone from the groups, you know, sent me a text that I had lost a PDF of something I had lost. That was really helpful. And, and just like work out, you know, some of the, the problems, you know, how, how do, how do you approach talking about like so yeah. what i've got what i'll use the next one for is finsburg because mm. there is so much on finsburg that i worry that i will spend like you know four lectures on 200 lines yeah um, and yeah, that's, that's hard that's a we're, that's we're a challenge long form but even there you have to be selective yeah, yeah i mean and that's yeah. the it's just a question of how well, you know, how some of these things are for me finding ways to explain it when, you know, it often turns out that no one has explained it well. Mm. Even Tolkien in the, you know, in the in the Beowulf translation and, and commentary that sometimes there there's pieces in, in Beowulf that seemingly everybody just skates right through mm. because they have a general idea of what the passage is saying. And then when it comes down to like parsing out each word. And I'm like, how did I teach this for all these years and miss that? And I think the answer is if the students got like the basic gist, I'm like, cool, cool. We're moving mm -hmm. on now. But like, what actually is the subject of this sentence? Or why are there two very different objects for the same verb? And how does that work? And, you know, yeah, that's kind of close reading this. Just priceless. So is this going to turn into a new translation as well? I, I mean, I've, I've done now, I've double, I've done the work for it. I, I just, I mean, I, does the world need another translation of Beowulf is another yes. question. There can um, never be too many translations of Beowulf. Oh, it honestly does. I think so. I, mm -hmm. I mean, so I've always felt like that Seamus Heaney's is so beautiful. I mean, it's not accurate, but it's so beautiful that. Well, so you that just said is, it. Can't we have one that's that beautiful, but that's more accurate? And then Tolkien's is gorgeous as an experiment in everything he knew about the language, but he rendered it in prose. Well, he actually did 600 lines of it in in poetry, and I right. still don't understand why the estate hasn't published that. And actually, somebody told me it may be my fault, what which I do? which I would be horrified if it were. I need to go talk to Catherine. When I, next time I'm in Oxford. Yeah. So suppose like Christopher and I had worked out a deal where I was going to edit and, and publish the, the Beowulf translations. Mm -hmm. And then we, we had a, a falling out that was kind of orchestrated by a British tabloid journalist who 
said a bunch of Christopher. I mean, we, we reconciled like long ago, but, but anyway, he had already started doing the work himself then at that point. But what a friend of mine who's a barrister told me is that because I had suggested this idea of publishing synoptically the poetry and the prose wherever they both existed and then just using the prose elsewhere. In other words, like you'd open the book and for the first page, you'd have the poetry on the left and the prose on the right. That's and perfect. then when you ran out of poetry, you'd have the rest of it. And I don't know why. And I was like, why didn't they do that? And she said, because if they had under British law, you could have sued them. <laughs> and I'm like, but I wouldn't have. <laughs> Oh, I would never, visit you know, all I did was have this little idea. Like I didn't do the work, you know, of, of putting it that way, but that's apparent. That's the story I've been told is that under British law, then that would have been some kind of like exchange of value. And therefore the letter giving me permission to publish the, the thing would have been a binding contract. Whereas if they just mm -hmm. said, you know, we're, we're done, that's a different story. So well, I'll have um, to go back to it again because I want that to exist. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I would just write to, you know, Catherine and say, I yeah. should probably like, if that's the case and maybe it's not, I'm being, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but like, go ahead, you know, <laughs> release, yeah. release, just go ahead and publish it. Cause it, the poetry is, it's very much like the, the mounds of Munberg poem, mm, right. you know, it's, it's um, Tolkien writing in his full on alliterative old English verse in modern English. And nobody has done that before or since like him. I mean, Auden tries, but Auden is in the end still a modern poet. And, you know, and Tolkien was, I mean, that Mounds of Munberg poem, that's like, that could be Anglo-Saxon. It could be hmm. like song or done to the same rhythms and everything. Yep. Mm -hmm. So just, just on a practical note, where in terms of the address can people go? to to support either work the exploring beowulf or how to learn how to think so people can go to press.signumuniversity.org and search around from there in our bookstore and our catalog and our authors and there's an exploring beowulf specific link press.signumuniversity.org slash books slash exploring hyphen beowulf <laughs> and then mike also has his own page there. But like I say, just go to press.signalmuniversity.org and look around from there. You can subscribe to the Beowulf Project on a monthly basis, purchase the back installments, keep your eye for when the liberal arts book is coming out or join, join Mike's author's circle as a patron. So I'm going to say goodbye now. Serena Higgins and Michael Drought, thank you so much for coming on. And Mike, thank you for talking about these, these books, which are... Yeah, the, the one I read has been so enjoyable, and I do intend to check out Exploring Beowulf for it sure. Was, it was fun, and if you ever want to talk about Tolkien stuff, I'm happy to do that, too. I would so. absolutely love that. All blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on a decent plan. With here an addict to Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. So I'm just so grateful that you've been willing to jump in in the early years of the press and try this experiment with us. I think you should tell just how early I was in the the 
evolution of the press because i believe if i'm not mistaken you guys announced the press around 10 p.m on like say a friday and i had my prospectus into you by 9 a.m the next morning for the liberal arts book so you had the full manuscript in okay well yes by the next morning <laughs> so you were the first submitter by far it was awesome but so that's that's actually the second time that's something like that has happened for me and that's why there's a journal tolkien studies uh, so this we when we found tolkien studies was founded when i was having a phone conversation with doug anderson and he said, or maybe it was in an email that he said, I've always thought that we should have a journal, Tolkien studies, because, you know, Malorn is is all Tolkien focused, but at that time, Malorn was very much fan art, fan fiction, you know, a kind of reports on conferences and stuff rather than, than you know, pure scholarship. And Mythlore was pure scholarship, but it wasn't focused on Tolkien. It was the whole, you know, fantasy inklings. And so Doug says this, and like a complete naive doofus, I'm like, we should go ahead and found it. And and he's like, well, we should talk to my friend Verlin. And so I, the three of us talked, and then we solicited articles from, from people because, you know, you have this chicken and egg problem of that if the journal doesn't exist, no one wants to submit to it. And so we put together the first issue, and we were expecting that Kent State UP would would pick up because they had published Verlin's books and she had a connection and they rejected us without even like reading it mm. without the prospectus and then we thought Greenwood but they'd apparently gone temporarily out of business or something at that time and so I had this this I decided that this was incredibly humiliating we can't just like tell people we have nowhere to publish their work so we're going to self-publish and I spent months learning how to do in design and um, looking at all kinds of old Oxford journals and trying to make it look like them and everything. And I had it, and this is how long ago it was, I had it on a CD. And then I went to the International Society of Anglo-Saxonist Conference in, and it was in Arizona in August, which oh. was interesting. And I'm sitting there talking to Pat Connor and he's like, I've just become the head of West Virginia University Press. I'm like, and I'm just, just chatting and he's like, you know the weirdest thing? We make no money on the books we publish. Those are break even at best. The only thing we make money on are journals. I would have thought it was the opposite. Huh. And I'm like, do you want to publish another journal? And and he's and he go and he's like, on Tolkien? Oh, this was in 2003, remember? So this is sort of the height of Peter Jackson mania. He's like, well, I think that could work. You know, what would be the lead time? And I reached into my bag and handed him the <laughs> CD and said, it's ready to go. It's oh, laid out awesome. and everything. So, you know, I think in some ways, what I'm really hopeful with, you know, with Signum and so far so, so good is that having a long string of rejections and then having the the final project like ready to go for the for the the press that that finally takes a chance on it. I mean, Tolkien Studies. We are you know we just published volume 19 and we're hard at you know we've already got all the articles in and are just editing volume 20. So and that's been going on now. It started in fall of fall of 2001. Oh my god. And. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm so old. So, you know, somebody took a chance on that and it's been really successful for everybody. And that's what I'm hoping is, you know, is going to happen with Signum. And so here I am, we're at a conference and Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, announces the press and you're like, I have something for that. And so here I have a full book manuscript in my hands before 24 hours have passed. So yeah, congratulations. I know, obviously I know Serena, I know Corey, I know that pretty much everything that they have touched in the past you know, X number of years has turned to gold. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that it's gonna work out. Oh, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. And I, I couldn't be more grateful for you trusting us with your manuscript and with the Beowulf project. And the manuscript, now this wasn't a case of it having been rejected. It has a kind of an interesting backstory, right? Of why you already had this complete manuscript in your hand when you were at a conference. So yes, it has the most tortuous history of anything I've ever written. <laughs> I think a quite a ways back, at least 10 years back, I, I did an audio course on the liberal arts. And that was because John Alexander, who's the, he was my executive producer for all of those audio courses. He now founded a company, Scholarly Sojourns, that I do tours for. I'm doing a tour this summer. But he had said, he went to Kenyon as an undergrad. He really believed in the liberal arts. And he's like, we, we, need, a, we need an audio course that just argues for the value of the liberal arts. And so I, I put something together. I, I thought it was, you know, pretty, pretty solid. And it, it, the, it sold reasonably well. The problem was this was right at the, at the, boundary time between selling CDs and digital subscriptions and it kind of fell through the cracks a little bit and the, my the contract with Audible is horrible like hmm. I get 25 cents for each Audible download when I would get $35 if someone bought the CDs hmm. you know in, in royalty stuff so like that was not ideal but anyway it was out there and then I get this this random email from a publisher in China, China Youth Book. I love it that it's book singular too. And China Youth Book says, you know, we want to do a Chinese translation of your book on the liberal arts. The problem was there was no book on the liberal arts. There was 120 pages of incoherent notes and then <laughs> audio recordings. One of John Alexander's rules that I still follow to this day is no scripts. For, for audio stuff because he says it puts people to sleep. So I have lots of notes and I improvise, you know, around them. They're not allowed to, they weren't, I still follow that they're not allowed to be in complete sentences because otherwise you read. And, and so, so I had this, these notes. And so I paid one of my students and I feel terrible for having done this. I paid him to transcribe all eight hours of the, the audio course. And I'm like, okay, I'll just, edit that into a book. This was such a huge mistake. It, it made everything 20 times harder. I'm still pulling errors and infelicities and like sentences that like, I would never write like this out of the, the text. It's a terrible way to go. I should have just used the notes, but I, I did that. And I made the kind of like what China youth book wanted. They wanted something short and, you know, pithy or whatever. And so they translated into Chinese and they they sent me a nice advance check and I have never heard from them again. They don't respond to emails. They don't like respond to letters. I have no idea whatever happened. The book shows up on, on Amazon sometimes if you search for it in Chinese. But, but anyway, so then I'm like, I should 
turn this into a book in English. But again, it wasn't right. So I ended up having to rewrite it completely again. And and then it got rejected from various places for really weird reasons, though maybe they have something to do with things that, that Serena mentioned before. Like one clearly got upset that I spelled Barack Obama's first name wrong with added added or subtracted a, a C. And and in my defense, I had been reading Emiri Baraka's poetry for our class. Mm-hmm. The, right before I wrote that. But but anyway, so so it, it, it had gotten rejected a couple places and I'd been like and then COVID came. So it sat with another press for two years and apparently no one read it during that time. And then they bounced it back to me. So That's and so then Serena <laughs> sort of has had me add like multiple chapters and other pieces to it. So this, is, this has been this the most how many times and then Higgins got her hands on it and woof. Man. Well, I mean, honestly, I'd never be able to tell. It's so Thanks, fluid, Serena, for the editing. So fun, <laughs> humorous, just like one of one of the liveliest defenses of the liberal arts that I've read. 